this evening is <coughs> Judges 17, 1 to 18, and, oh, Judges 17, 1 to 18, and 31, but the page is 261, sorry, excuse me, page 261. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, the Lord bless you, my son. When he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make an image overlaid with silver. I will give it back to you. So after he returned the silver to his mother, she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who used them to make the idol. And it was put in Micah's house. Now this man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and some household gods and installed one of his sons as his priest. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who had been living within the clan of Judah, left that town in search of some other place to stay. On his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah asked him, where are you from? I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he said, and I'm looking for a place to stay. Then Micah said to him, live with me and be my father and priest, and I'll give you ten shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. So the Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man became like one of his sons to him. Then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. In those days, Israel had no king. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking a place of their own where they might settle, because they had not yet come into an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. So the Danites sent five of their leading men from Zorah and Eshtol to spy out the land and explore it. These men represented all the Danites. They told them, go, explore the land. So they entered the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah, where they spent the night. When they were near Micah's house, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. So they turned in there and asked him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? Why are you here? He told them what Micah had done for him and said, He has hired me and I am his priest. Then they said to him, Please inquire of God to learn whether our journey will be successful. The priest answered them, Go in peace. Your journey has the Lord's approval. So the five men left and came to Laish, where they saw that the people were living in safety, like the Sidonians, at peace and secure. And since their land lacked nothing, they were prosperous. Also, they lived a long way from the Sidonians and had no relationship with anyone else. When they returned to Zor and Eshtel, their fellow Danites asked them, 
how did you find things? They answered, come on, let's attack them. We've seen the land and it is very good. Aren't you going to do something? Don't hesitate to go there and take it over. When you get there, you will find an unsuspecting people and a spacious land that God has put into your hands, a land that lacks nothing whatever. Then 600 men of the Danites, armed for battle, set out from Zorah and Eshtol. On their way, they set up camp near Kiriath-Jerim and Judah. That is why the place west of Kiriath-Jerim is called Manahed-Dan to this day. From there, they went on to the hill country of Ephraim and came to Micah's house. Then the five men who had spied out the land of Laish said to their fellow Danites, Do you know that one of these houses had an ephod, some household gods, and an image overlaid with silver? Now you know what to do. So they turned in there and went to the house of the young Levite at Micah's place and greeted him. The 600 Danites armed for battle stood at the entrance of the gate. The five men who had spied out the land went inside and took the idol, the ephod, and the household gods, while the priest and the 600 armed men stood at the entrance of the gate. When the five men went into Michael's house and took the idol, the ephod, and the household gods, the priest said to them, What are you doing? They answered him, Be quiet, don't say a word. Come with us and be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve a tribe and clan in Israel? as priest rather than just one man's household. The priest was very pleased. He took the ephod, the household gods, and the idol, and went along with the people, putting their little children, their livestock, and their possessions in front of them. They turned away and left. When they had gone some distance from Micah's house, the men who lived near Micah were called together and overtook the Danites. As they shouted after them, the Danites turned and said to Micah, What's the matter with you that you called out your men to fight? He replied, you took the gods I made and my priest and went away. What else do I have? How can you ask what's the matter with you? The Danites answered, don't argue with us or some of the men may get angry and attack you and you and your family will lose your lives. So the Danites went their way and Micah, seeing that they were too strong for him, turned around and went back home. Then they took what Micah had made and his priest and went on to Laish against a people at peace and secure. They attacked them with a sword and burned down their city. There was no one to rescue them because they lived a long way from Sidon and had no relationship with anyone else. The city was in a valley near Beth Rehob. The Danites rebuilt the city and settled there. They named it Dan after their ancestor Dan, who was born to Israel, though the city used to be called Laish. There the Danites set up for themselves the idol, and Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of the captivity of the land. They continued to use the idol Micah had made all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. Good evening. Mary, thank you so much for reading our passage so well, so clearly. Thank you. Please do keep your Bibles open. Um, 
because we just had a long reading, you know I love to do this. Please stand up if your knees aren't creaky. Please stand up if you can. Just have a little stretch. Give the person next to you a fist bump if you want to. All right. Take your seats. Let me, um, let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Father, thank you so much for your word. What a privilege it is to be able to hear you speak to us. Forgive us for when we take this for granted. Help us now to um, pay attention to what you have to say to us through your word. We pray you give us soft hearts and help us to want to uh, put your word into practice. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Regrets, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do. I saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and more, much, much more. I did it, I did it my way. You all know the song, Frank Sinatra. He took pride in singing about doing things his way, which I think we can relate to. We all, if we're honest, we all love to do things our way, don't we? Indeed, when when things are not done our way, we can grow impatient or become frustrated. We can grumble. And in some ways, that shouldn't surprise us. We live in an individualistic culture where we're regularly taught to, to put self at the center of everything, taught to have and do things our way. For example, we're frequently encouraged to do what, what makes us happy, which I'm not sure is good advice, actually. If, if I do something that makes me happy, it might not necessarily make you happy. Imagine we're standing next to each other, chatting away after the service, and James comes round with a tray containing one scone, the very last one. It would make me very happy to pick it up and put it in my mouth. But if you like scones as much as I do, it might not make you very happy. In fact, you might even go, hey, you're one of the ministers here. You should have let me have it. <laughs> now, that's a bit of a silly example of course, they are more serious ones. For instance, if, if invading another country is what makes you happy, please do not do it. It will devastate others. Doing what makes us happy or, or doing things our way can evidently be, be bad. But, but we still love to do it. So it's little wonder then, when it comes to God, we also want to serve or worship God our way. So we'll, we'll hear people say things like, I believe in God, but I'm not, really, I'm not really into church. Or, I'm spiritual, not religious. Or, I like to think of God as dot, dot, dot. We often want to worship God our way. And this is what we find uh, the main characters in tonight's passage doing. But as we'll see, it is riddled with problems. But what exactly is wrong with it? 
The question we're thinking about tonight is, why can't I just worship God my way? Why can't I just worship God my way? And in order to answer this, uh, we're going to look at a couple of examples in our passage of people who, who worship their way and the problems with that. The first example we're going to consider is Micah. Our first point is Micah, a man who worships God his way. Our passage begins in a, in a rather unusual manner. So we find this guy, Micah, confessing to his mother that he'd stolen her silver. And it's through this confession that we learn not only about his theft, but also about his motivation for owning up to his crime. So he says that he heard his mother pronounce a curse against whoever had stolen her silver. Do you see here why Micah is actually fessing up and and returning the silver to his mom? It's only because he doesn't want to be jinxed. There's, there's, There's no sense of remorse or guilt over what he's done. Yet surprisingly, his mom replies, the Lord bless you, my son. Although she'd originally pronounced a curse against the thief, she won't even give her son a mild rebuke, despite his begrudging confession. And then things get weirder. Have a look at me at verse 3. When he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make an image overlaid with silver. I will give it back to you. What does Micah's mother do? She gives the silver back to her son, but but not in the form of currency. Before giving it back to him, she first has a blacksmith turn it into an idol. And here's what I find really striking. She says that she's consecrating or dedicating the silver to the Lord, to Yahweh, even though she's creating a literal idol from her silver. Do you see the issue? She's breaking the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an image. This woman is a blatant lawbreaker. And so is her son. Well, when he, when he steals from his mother, he's breaking two commandments in one swoop, isn't it? Honor your father and mother, and you shall not steal. But that's not where Micah's brazen law-breaking stops. Have a look down at verse 5. Now this man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and some household gods and installed one of his sons as his priest. Micah is clearly, clearly cut from the same cloth as his mom. He's even got his own personal shrine at home. This guy is steeped in idolatry. And it's all terribly ironic. 
Micah, whose name means, who is like the Lord? He's behaving as though the Lord is completely unknown to him. It's, it's a little surprise then that we, we find the author's comment in verse 6. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. You see, Micah, Micah thinks that he's worshiping God. But the author is making it crystal clear that this man isn't worshiping God at all. And that's because he's doing worship his way, not God's way. He's worshiping as he sees fit. And friends, that isn't worship, is it? Because God is God and and we're not, God is the one who who gets to decide how we are to to worship. If we think that we can worship God our way instead of His way, we're actually beginning to behave a bit like God. We're calling the shots that He's meant to call. Do you see what we're learning here about Micah's worship? It's a farce. He he couldn't care less about obeying God. He's he's shameless in his idolatry. We saw that even when he gives his mother's silver back, it's only because he's superstitious and doesn't want to be cursed. That's hardly repentance. This man's only concerned about worshiping God, his way. In verses 7 to 13, we then read about a Levite who's, who's traveled from Bethlehem looking for somewhere to uh, relocate. And Micah meets this man and he thinks, hold on, this guy's a Levite. Levites, the priests are Levites. Maybe, maybe he can be my priest. So what does he do? He offers him a job as priest, which the Levite gladly accepts. Here's the problem, though. There's nothing in these verses that suggests that this man is actually a priest. We just learned that he's a Levite. And here's the thing. Yes, look, the priests were Levites. But not all Levites were priests. A small minority of them were. So this is massively presumptive by Micah. And here's what makes what he's doing even worse. In Israel, the tent of the Lord is where worship is supposed to be conducted. That is where the Lord dwells. And at this point in Israel's history, it's, it's not in Jerusalem, but in a place called Shiloh. We'll see this later on in our passage. Shiloh is the place of worship. But Micah, he creates his own worship center. And this is a direct breach of Deuteronomy chapter 12, which says, You are to seek the place 
the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices. Folks, Micah, he's just doing his own thing. And here's what's interesting. He thinks that because he now has this token Levite as a priest, that God is pleased with him. Have a look down at, at verse 13. And Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. We've seen that Micah has, has no qualms about riding roughshod over God's law. He loves to do as he sees fit. And in verse 13, we get to see what his heart is really like. He believes that he can bribe God. He's like, God, look, hey, I've got this guy. He's a, he's a Levite. He's my priest. Are we cool? He thinks God will be happy with him and bless him. And this reminds me a, a, a little bit of conversations I've had with people about Jesus. It's not uncommon uh, for people to push back when you, you know, when you say that Jesus is the only way to have eternal life. We need to trust in him. People can push back, as you probably well know. And people might say something like, hey, I, I'm not a bad person, okay? I, I'm not a robber. I'm not a murderer. I even give money to charity when I can. I'm sure if God exists, he'll allow me into heaven. Do you see how that's a bit similar to, to Micah? We think we can bribe God with our good behavior. We think that because we help that elderly lady cross the street during the week, that God will be pleased. But here's the issue with that. When we do that, we, we fail to recognize that God doesn't only see when we help the elderly, elderly lady cross the road. He also sees when we've lied to our colleagues or when we've lost our temper with our parents or if we've been hurtful to a loved one, or if we just go about our lives largely ignoring God. You see, friends, God doesn't only see the good. He also sees the bad. And that's what Micah doesn't seem to get. He thinks he can just worship God his way, however he wants. Just yesterday, um, I heard a a famous actor, a comedian, say in an interview, God loves me. God really loves me. But just moments before that, he'd been boasting about how he'd taken his son to a strip club on his 21st birthday. He reminded me a bit of Micah, someone who worships God his way. 
Let's move now from Micah to Dan. So they're an entire tribe who worship God their own way. Our second point is Dan, a tribe who worship God their way. Chapter 18 begins with uh, the Danites looking for an area to settle in. And this is because, as we learned back in chapter 1, which feels like ages ago, um, we learned that they'd failed to take the land that God had originally told them to possess. And that's because the, the Amorites, who'd been living there, unsurprisingly resisted them, resisted them when they tried to take their land. But here's the issue. In, instead of persevering in their efforts to, to conquer the land that they were meant to, and instead of seeking the Lord's help and trusting in Him, in chapter 18, we find the Danites opting to look for land elsewhere. They, they, they want to find territory that will be easier for them to conquer. So what do they do? They send out five spies to explore the lands around them. And on their expedition, these spies make a pit stop in the region of Ephraim, where Micah lives, and in whose house they stay overnight. And it's there that they meet Micah's personal Levite. Look at what they, they ask him in verse 5. Then they said to him, Please inquire of God to learn whether our journey will be successful. The priest answered them, Go in peace. Your journey has the Lord's approval. What's strange about the Danites asking the Levite for a prophetic word? Firstly, this Levite, as we've seen, is, is a con artist. He's been assisting Micah's worship at his, at his shrine, which is dedicated to his silver idol and household gods. This Levite, just like Micah, is an idolater. Why on earth would they want a prophetic word from him? Secondly, no one, no one at this point should be telling the Danites to conquer other territory. God had already told them which land they were meant to possess. Do you see the irony in all of this? The Danites, they're not really interested in doing God's will. They already know what that is. And they've chosen to ignore it. Here's what they want. They want to find someone with a veneer of religious authority who can tell them what they want to hear, what they want to do. And this dodgy Levite, he fits the bill, and he obliges. He says, yes, God says you can have a different land. He will bless you. But God never said that. In some ways, I think this isn't too different from, from what still happens today. 
it's possible for us to ignore what God very clearly says in his word and instead listen to people who have religious titles like reverend, bishop, pastor, who tell us what we want to hear but actually isn't God's word. And folks, ministers like that, sadly, are a dime a dozen. Friends, just because someone has a religious title doesn't mean they speak for God. The Levitical priest did not speak on God's behalf. And sadly, many ministers today, despite claiming to, also do not. The Danite spies, after hearing from the Levites what their itching ears wanted to hear, they go on to scout, to scout out the land of Laish. And notice what we learn about the city in, in verse 7. Have a look with me at verse 7. So the five men left and came to Laish, where they saw that the people were living in safety, like the Sidonians, at peace and secure. And since their, their land lacked nothing, they were prosperous. Also, they lived a long way from the Sidonians and had no relationship with anyone else. Did you notice how the author highlights that the people of Laish were at peace? That this is something the author mentions again in verse 27. And here's why. He's showing us that the Danites are attacking, attacking people whom they have no business attacking. This attack is completely unprovoked. Why do the Danites want to attack the people of the city? Because they're an easy target. They call them an unsuspecting people in verse 10. It's like running behind someone walking the street and they can't see you. They've and punching them in the back of the head. They don't see it coming. This is what the Danites are doing. And this attack is categorically not what God wants them to do. Yet they find ways to, to persuade or convince themselves that it is. Folks, what are they doing? They're worshiping God their way. Indeed, they're so committed to doing this that they even go to Micah's house, who, whose house they'd stayed in, by the way, and they nick his idols and they take his priest as well, which is very interesting. Do you remember what we read earlier about Micah? How he thought that because he had this Levite as his priest that God would bless him? Well, after chasing the Danites to, to retrieve his idols and Levite, now look at what he says to them in verse 24. You took the gods I made and my priest and went away. What else do I have? And then verse 25, the Danites answered, Don't argue with us, or some of the men may, may get angry and attack you. And you and your family will lose your lives. So the Danites went their way. And Micah, seeing that they were too strong for him, turned round 
and went back home. Folks, worshiping God your way never ends well. Just look at Micah. He lost everything. He says, what else do I have? And it doesn't end well for the Danites either. They ruthlessly slaughter the peaceful people of Laish. And notice how the passage ends. Have a look at verse 30. There in Laish, the Danites set up for themselves the idol. And Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of the captivity of the land. They continued to use the idol Micah had made all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. It says here that um, the Danites' idolatry continued until the captivity of the land. By the way, that would only happen over 450 years later. In other words, the Danites worshipped Micah's silver idol for almost half a millennium. And did you notice what we learned about the, the Levite they'd recruited as priest? We learned that he was a descendant of Moses. The author has saved this detail about him until now, right at the end of this story. Spiritually, things have got so bad that even Moses' descendants, the descendants of Moses, to whom God gave the law, they're the ones leading Israel in their idolatry. Spiritually, the Israelites are spiraling out of control. Why? Because they're worshiping God their way. Friends, let's, let's not fall into the same trap and worship God our way. Now, what's the solution to Israel's worship problem? We saw in chapter 17, verse 6, that in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. What does Israel need? Israel needs a king. Hence what we need as well. Our third point is, we need a king who shows us how to worship. I've titled this, um, this final point, we need a king who shows us how to worship, because Israel doesn't just need any king. They need a king who will lead them in right worship of God. So as you know, later on in Israel's history, they would have a monarchy. But we learn from other books in the Old Testament that most of the kings were terrible. And even their good kings had serious issues. David, who's described well, as, a, as a man after God's own heart, committed adultery and murder. Evidently, the king that God's people ultimately need is not one who lived on earth during Old Testament times. He's one who would come centuries later. And this king, he didn't view women as sexual objects as some of the other, the, other, um, old, the Old Testament kings did. 
Rather, he was kind and compassionate to them and blessed them. And this king didn't use his power to kill, but instead was killed so that others might live. It's this king, Jesus, who shows us how to worship. In John 14, verse 6, King Jesus says, I am the way. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. How do we worship God? Not our way, but but His way. The way to worship Him is through Jesus. It's through this person, this man, whom God has chosen to be the eternal King. Are we worshiping God through Jesus? That is, are we trusting in Jesus, particularly in what He accomplished through His death and resurrection? That is how we are to worship God. We come to God through Jesus. It's by trusting in this King who died for us that we can be forgiven for all our misplaced worship, for all our selfishness and self-centeredness, for all our moral failings, for the times maybe when we've been, a bit, we've been a bit like Micah or even the Danites. If we are not already, let's begin to worship God His way. That's the only way we can rightly worship Him. And it's the only way that leads to eternal life. So let's not neglect it, but give God praise for making us, for, for making us a way. The way is a person, is King Jesus, and he's very, very good. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for when we try to worship you our way instead of your way. Thank you so much that you have sent your son and that he enables us to to know you, to have a relationship with you. He says, if you know me, you will know my father as well. Thank you so much that we have a way to you and it's through him. Help us to trust in him and to rejoice in him because he gives us access to you. And we ask this in his name. Amen.